0: have played 21 games. They've won four of them. It's the worst start anyone has seen around here in more than half a century, and there's absolutely no sign of a light at the end of the tunnel. Good morning to you. Good Friday morning. I'm Dayan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports and the newly reborn DK Sports Radio podcasting network, which we hope you will set to auto-downloads, whether you're listening to us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, anywhere that podcasts are available. the Pirates lost to the Indians last night at PNC Park. I don't know the score. I don't care what the score was at this point. I know that the Pirates ended up with a zero because that's what they do. And I watched this game, if it's possible, through more of a prism of what's actually happening here as opposed to what was going on in the game. I'm kind of past looking at these games as individual events. And I'm wondering if this is, as a lot of people are are saying and as the record would suggest, the worst team or one of the worst teams the Pirates have ever had. And before I dive into that here, I feel like pointing out, first and foremost, that I've been watching this team my whole life. When I was a child, they were really, really good. You're talking about in the 70s, of course. They won two world championships, competed regularly in the NL East. Ended up with all kinds of super-talented players that were a blast to watch. Not just the the megastars, either. Not just the Willie Stargills, Dave Parker. Uh, Roberto Clemente, obviously, early on in that decade. And then came the 90s, and they were good and everything else. And they, they, they've, they've had their... Their spells. They've had their their flirtations, if you will, 2013-15, to 15, if you can call that a flirtation. It was fun for three years around here. But overall, it's been pretty dry, so you always have to hesitate a little bit when you say worst anything as it relates to the Pirates. Here's what I won't hesitate to say. It's the worst hitting team. The worst... Line up the worst performance from 1 through 9 that I have ever seen in my life for any stretch. And I get that it's just 21 games. And in a normal year, that would just be a part, a fraction of your 162. But that's not the environment that we're in. When you say that a season is 60 games, it's a season. And what we're seeing right now from the Pirates at the plate is beyond abysmal. It's beyond embarrassing. These aren't even competitive at-bats. I can't even bring myself to really single anybody out when your manager, who I've given some heat to, Derek Shelton, but when your manager is forced to put Eric Gonzalez at the top of the lineup because he's literally the only competent hitter you have going right now. He entered the evening hitting 314. And he's forced, and I, I, I'll back him on this one, to bench Brian Reynolds because Reynolds has looked worse than anybody at the plate. The only other guy who'd been even competitive through the better part of this 21-game season was Colin Moran, and he's really come back to earth as well. Kevin Newman's looked a little bit better, but not much. Josh Bell's just been terrible. Gregory Polanco might be the worst everyday player in the major leagues. Three for 43, you can't put him out there either. Cole Tucker was in right field. Cole Tucker was in right field, again, because you can't play Polanco. I've never seen anything like this. And what's more disconcerting is that I don't see anything Any, any sign of a turnaround here. And no matter what you think of this season, and I mean, it's really, really lost. It's beyond lost. The Pirates need to find a way to get something of value out of these players, these hitters in particular. The guys at or near the top of the order, Newman, Reynolds, Bell, Adam Frazier, Colin Moran if for no other reason than the Ben Charrington might be able to move somebody, whether it's in a trade or to have assets moving forward for the franchise, but to have everybody just get in the same car and drive over the same cliff at the same time is, I've never seen anything like it. It's the worst offensive performance The worst offensive lineup, team, however you want to label it, I've ever seen in a lifetime of watching the Pittsburgh Baseball Club. Never seen anything like this. The worst. Here, however, is where I'll hedge on the broader comment about the worst team of all. The Pirates are 4-17. The last time they started off... This badly goes all the way back to 1952. So the easy thing is to say, well, yeah, of course, this is the worst team since then, arguably even worse. I mean, that team at least had a young Ralph Kiner, and there was stuff to watch. Kiner, <laughs> I guess, from what I've heard or read, it was pretty much just him. And this team doesn't even have that. There's, there's not that one player that you're watching where you go, man, this is really fun. You know, at least, at least we got this guy. There isn't any of that. They've all been terrible. Certainly offensively. But here's why I can't go there. In the, in the general sweeping sense that this is the worst team that I've ever seen. And I don't care who gets offended by hearing this, because for some reason this is, like, completely sacrilegious to say in Pittsburgh. Pirates have 11 guys out, including half of the pitching staff. Six out of the 12 pitchers that they expected to have going into this season are out. Three of them are starting pitchers. Two of them were their closer and their setup guy, Keone Kella and Kyle Crick. Kella's now back. Not that that really matters much. And Nick Birdie, who looked like he was going to be this uber sensation, throwing 100-plus miles an hour, of course, has been lost for the season. So you have your three best relievers that basically have been out the whole way. Plus three starters. And I'm not even getting into, you know, Jamison Tyon not being available. We knew that was going to be the case. Chris Archer not being available. We knew that was going to be the case. When you lose half your pitching staff, everything's out the window. Everything. You've thrown not just your chances, your opportunities to compete, You've thrown the hope out. And that sucks the life out of you. It's not just fans that get dispirited by that. It's the players. Am I making an excuse for the hitters to be this bad? Wow, no. I'm just trying to be realistic about everything that's happened here. These guys were all gung-ho. For real. Not fake. Not phony. Not forced. Not manufactured. They were... Together, they were committed. They were pumped. They were sticking by each other. They thought they were going to come into this season and shock everybody and everything else. I listened to these guys. I listened to them on the record when we were in Bradenton, and I was able to still talk to them off the record. I heard them. I heard the passion with which they were speaking. I believed them, meaning in their passion. And then when I looked back to 2019 and I saw the performance that they had, pretty much that same group, through 90 games, I thought, let's see. Let's just see what they can do. Obviously, no one was expecting anything. I wasn't expecting anything. But you, you stay open-minded to it. And then they enter the season, and they have literally no pitchers. And they know that. They see that. They watched the guys who were coming in. They saw Miguel Del Pozo pitch to whatever that was, four or five batters in a row that night and basically just hand away a game that they were winning by four runs. It crushes you. you got nothing left. You know every day that you walk out there, that you don't have anywhere near as much of a chance as the other guys. And it beats you up. And no one likes being a loser and everything else. So it, it is going to affect the team. But are they the worst team I've seen overall? Are they the worst team I've covered? My answer to both of those is no. No, because I can't say that about a team that's missing 11 guys, including half the pitching staff. I can't say that with a straight face. I covered every day, home and road the 2010 team that lost 105 games. They really didn't have injuries slowing them down. And they even had a young Andrew McCutcheon, a young Neil Walker, guys that were kind of coming along that maybe gave you a little bit of hope. But they got their brains beat in every night, every day, again and again. And this was with healthy guys and a lot of very bad baseball players. And they were... Not just bad offensively and pitching-wise. They were bad, for the most part, other than the two middle infielders. They were bad defensively. They were really, really tough to watch. And they lost those 105 games on merit. I would look to a situation like that way more than I would to one like this, where these guys opened up missing half their team. I can't take that and just label this team with some broad brush that this is the worst thing I've ever seen. If you want to throw injuries out and pretend that they're not part of sports, first off, that's a really weird discussion to have. But second, go ahead. In that case, sure, it's easy. It's the easiest, laziest possible thing you can do is to say this is the worst team you've ever seen. Of course it is. Of course it is. Look at the record. Look at the performance. But to not mention the injuries at all, which most people don't do, it's almost like they're they're afraid somebody's going to come and bite them over it or take away their their Pittsburgh fan card or their I-hate-Bob-Nutting card or something. It's okay to acknowledge it. It's okay to just say it. But no one wants to do that. No one wants to be real about this. As close as I can come to trying to be real here, this season's been blown to bits already. Let's see some people start hitting. Let's see Josh Bell start hitting. Let's see Brian Reynolds wake up and get rid of whatever this sophomore garbage is that he has going on. Let's see Kevin Newman continue to improve. Let's see Adam Frazier up his trade value because he's not going to be part of the future here. He's just not. Let's see somebody say, hey, here's a gold glove finalist who's at least gotten on this role for Pittsburgh here, which obviously he hasn't. I'm just being fictitious. And maybe move him in 10 or 11 days at the deadline. Colin Moran, same thing. I don't blame the Pirates, unlike a lot of other people that I'm hearing from, for not bringing up the kids right away. If you're Ben Charrington, you want these veterans to get onto some kind of role here so in his perfect world, he can trade them. He can move them out of here. That's when you bring your kids up. So let's see it. That's what would be best for the Pirates. Not so much now, but definitely for the future. Wow. What, what else can we talk about today? How about not baseball when I come back? feels like it takes me a while to come down from talking about baseball, and I get all fired up. I'm not sure what it is about baseball that does that. Maybe it's the fact that it was really my my first love as a child, going back to when I really started following sports. I was six years old, and uh, I, I loved the Steelers. It was impossible not to in the 70s, but... The Pirates were my baby. They they were the ones that uh, that I just completely fell for, uh, as individual players, as a as a fan growing up. Um, they were they were it for me. And there's just something that strikes a nerve for me uh, uh, a distinct nerve when it comes to issues that relate to the Pirates uh, and or Major League Baseball and how Pittsburgh relates to Major League Baseball just just pushes a a a tender spot for me, if you will. I hope that's understood. And I hope it's understood that I've been covering the Pirates professionally for a for a very long time. Uh, But I'm also human and and I'm I, I try not to ever bury that humanity in terms of any team or player or coach that I cover. Uh, I think you always want to keep that somewhere close to the surface. I think it's a healthy place to have it. Once you, once you get a little too cold and, and too stoic and too stiff about everything, uh, it's going to impact your coverage and your ability to relate to your readers, to fans, to the public, to the things that they value that interest them. baseball just always had that that kind of impact on me and this is a this is a weird time it's a weird scenario in which to be making any kind of pronouncements sweeping or otherwise so it's why I get a little bit cringy when I hear this is the worst Pirates team ever and it's a Strange year, everybody came back from four and a half months of nothing, there was no spring training, and the Pirates come back from it as damaged from it as anybody with all of the injuries, season-ending injuries too, not little stuff, big stuff, not to mention the couple of, handful of, I should say, coronavirus cases that they had to deal with through camp that threw at least a couple of pretty important players, or theoretically important players, one of them being Gregory Polanco, totally out of whack. Not that that's still an excuse for him. When you're 43 at bats in, you need to be hitting something. It's just all, it's all different. And and I, I feel the same way to an extent about the Penguins. Like I've heard people bringing up that them losing to Montreal was the, Worst playoff loss they've ever had and trying to compare it to other players. You can't. You can't compare anything that's happening in 2020 to any other part of our lives. I'm sorry. That's not making an excuse. It's just giving fair context. The Penguins went down to a Montreal team that, for whatever reason, showed up, fired up, and ready to go. Is that an indictment of the Penguins that they didn't match that? Absolutely. Jim Rutherford, Mike Sullivan, everybody has every reason to be upset and disappointed with the leadership group, with the supporting cast, with everybody that was involved with the Penguins' lack of sizzle, if you will, through those four games. But it's also a weird circumstance. Montreal comes in as the 24th seed without a care in the world. Some of them, you'll recall, if you were really paying close attention to this before the these Stanley Cup playoffs started, which teams were getting together early or sooner for these camps to try to get more cohesive. The Penguins were awesome at this. Everybody showed up in Cranberry early. They were all whooping it up and energetic, and the Canadians were like, whatever, la-di-da, they showed up. Carey Price, a lot of people up there were speculating he wasn't even going to come. He was going to be one of the opt-outs. They eventually finally got a few guys together at Bell Center, and then they started getting a group together. So the whole thing is weird. Then Montreal shows up in Game 1, and you could tell right away, whoa, they look serious. Either that or they look like they're just having more fun. Which is it? The team that was the 24th seed that came in, Without an expectation in the world, with probably the dominant majority of their fans back home hoping like crazy they lose so they have a shot at Quebec native son Alexis Lafreniere with the top overall pick in the lottery. No one, not only did the, no one think Montreal could win, no one even wanted them to win, other than those 30 guys. So they didn't have a care in the world, so they go out there, and they're flying, and they're creating, and they're having fun, and you could see it. You could see it. Hockey's a lot like soccer in that regard. You can see a team's personality in its motion. You don't just have to watch whether or not they're smiling on the bench. You can watch the confidence with which they're making certain plays. You can see the, the ambition level of some of the passes that they make. I saw that in the Canadians and remarked on it right here on this show at the time that it was happening. Even after Game 2, which the Penguins won, I was insisting that there was something that the Canadians were doing that looked like nothing was going to bother them. They had no pressure. They had no pressure. So they beat Pittsburgh. And everything after that is still found gold. It's bonus round. There's no one even back home rooting against them anymore because the draft lottery happened. And they obviously weren't going to be the team that gets it. So they go out and they're playing the Flyers, and they're playing pretty well against the Flyers. And they look like they're going to get eliminated a couple nights ago, but they don't. They stave it off. They force a game six. Now all the pressure is again on Philadelphia And even with Brendan Gallagher out, thanks to that malicious cross-check that cracked his jaw by Matt Niskanen, who has at least some small history of cracking people's jaws with his stick, NHL player safety, tagged him with one whole game of a suspension so that he can feel shame about that and make sure that he's back if there's a Game 7, because you want to be fair to Niskanen in this case. Wow. But the Canadians will still be the ones that are flying around having fun because no one there's no burden on them. It's a different circumstance. All of this is. We can't forget that. You can't, on one hand, have one of the most common sports questions being asked in general discussion and debate, whether it's media or in the public, being, should there be an asterisk on this? Should there be an asterisk on this season or this tournament the way it's being run or this regular season or these individual achievements? And then at the same time, say that this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Can't say it, it's just a weird year. There's nothing else to it. It's a weird year. The only hope I still have, me for this to not be a weird year is for the Steelers to be a very competitive team in the AFC this fall and I'll be getting into that next as long as I'm telling you things that Fairly confident you don't want to hear today, which by the way is a great way of keeping listeners engaged, I'm told. <laughs> hey, what the heck, right? It's free. As long as I'm on that kind of roll, here's something else to think about. It's highly plausible that both James Connor and Juju Smith Schuster will return. Pro Bowl form in 2020. And I'm not sure why we're all tiptoeing around that subject. This segment of Daily Shot is always brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. During normal times, one in seven people in our region are food insecure, including one in five children, not knowing. Where a next meal is coming from can be scary. And now with the pandemic, the need for food is that much greater. If you are in need of food assistance, or if you would just like to support the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank, visit pittsburghfoodbank.org. Spell out those first three words. Don't abbreviate Pittsburgh like PGH or anything. It's pittsburghfoodbank.org. One dollar can provide enough food for up to five meals. I'll confess myself to being a Deontay disciple, if you will. Uh, He's tantalizing to watch as it relates in particular to what he could accomplish with Ben Roethlisberger as his quarterback. He's not Antonio Brown. I wouldn't do that to anybody. But he plays a very similar style. He's an extraordinarily sharp precise route runner. He makes violent cuts and makes them knowing where he's going and why he's going there. He also comes back to the football, something that Ben loves. So I've gotten duly excited about Deontay. I've also done it with a little bit more of a measured tone as it relates to James Washington He has that high point catching ability. He has the ability to make a reception while he's completely and diligently covered. Not everyone has that. He does. And from there, he has the body control that he can come down with the ball, maintain his balance, and take off and get more out of it. He's done that his whole life. Both of those guys are exciting. So I'll admit that I've done this thing. You know when you get... Uh, how do I word this as a as a as an observer, someone gets hurt and you kind of just cast them off in your head. you know what I'm talking about? You get mad at them for lack of a better way to say it. You know yeah, this person yeah, I mean he's he's good, but you can't trust him. Well the Steelers have their share of these guys. I mean, Stephon Tuitt is that guy on defense. You can love what Stefan Tuitt does when he's on the field, but you won't think that much of it because you're convinced the next time you see him walking slowly toward the sideline after a play that he's done for the year. And that's a deflating thing when you're watching a team, when you're supporting a team. You lose trust. You lose confidence in that player. You know who else loses that trust in the confidence? The coaches do. As much as coaches bristle anytime you bring up, as a reporter, somebody being injury-prone, they hate that almost as much as the athletes. They find it unfair. Well, you know, James actually had several different injuries, and they were not uh, soft tissue injuries. They were somebody running into his leg or something that he couldn't control, you don't care. You just know that they're not out there. So you kind of lose some of that belief in those guys, and coaches do too. Mike Tomlin, for as little as he generally likes to reveal at his press gatherings, will speak about these things openly. He has no problem saying it. You, you've heard it from him yourself, how valuable participation is and how much we value availability and the ways he words it like that. And they address these things. Vance McDonald is another one. He wouldn't stay on the field. Well, what's the solution for that? Go get Eric Ebron. We can use two tight end sets, or if one of you gets hurt, we'll still have a really good tight end out there. The other guy will play. They don't do that for any reason other than, I believe this, that that they didn't trust Vance McDonald to stay on the field, nor should they. And that brings me back to Juju and and James. Watching these guys right now at Heinz Field, as I was able to this past week, I mean, I know it doesn't mean anything. You know, they're running around and they're jumping and they're making great plays. Juju in particular just looks tremendous. And you know what? He knows it. Uh, he's he's strutting. You know, I know that turns some people off and there's other people that just love it. I actually couldn't care less in either direction. I just want to see the guy make plays. And he's making plays. And he's connecting with Ben. In a way that you see Ben connect with a special receiver, um, and it just hasn't been limited to slot type plays or quick slants, uh, and some of which, to Juju's credit, he's turned into big gains in his short career. It's been downfield. It's been it's been good stuff. I, I'm not allowed to get into too much details. You know these NFL rules and everything. He's been really good. And you know who else has been really good and looks really good is James Conner. And when James is out there, and on those rare occasions that he's healthy, he is that player from 2018. For the first, what was it, nine, ten games of that year, he was arguably the best running back in football. He led the NFL in broken tackles. He was catching the ball out of the backfield. He was picking up all of his blocking assignments, which never underestimate what that means in a Mike Tomlin atmosphere. He did everything. He was seeing holes. He was attacking holes. He was hitting the edge. A lot of people said he wouldn't be able to hit the edge in the NFL. He did that too. Juju and James... Have already been to a Pro Bowl, have already played at a very high level. So it's not like they have to break out. What Deontay and James Washington are going to be tasked with is a lot more demanding in my eyes. They they have to they have to break through to a level that neither of them has hit. As much as you want to say about Deontay's Okay, season that he had in 2019. It was just an okay season overall. You know, he showed a lot of really bright signs, especially later on in the year, especially that game against the Jets. But he's hardly through the ceiling that's currently over his head, and the same goes for Washington. For Juju and James Conner, all they got to do, all they got to do is something they've already done. So when I talk about the hope that I have for this offense and why I say that it's not just about Ben Roethlisberger, it isn't. Look, Ben's the key. Ben's the key to every guy I just mentioned and and more. But if these two guys in particular, both of whom it should never go without mention, are heading into a contract year, meaning they can both be free agents after this season, and no matter how wholesome you ever happen to think somebody is in sports, the number of athletes who are unaware and unmotivated by performing in a contract year is exactly zero. That's going to make an impact. Those two guys, if they can, particularly in James Conner's case, stay on the field. You're talking about the offense improving by leaps and bounds. You really are. It's going to be exponential. And man, am I looking forward to that? Can we just have some football so I can stop being angry about all these other things? Uh, listen, thank you so much for listening to this show, uh, all week. I just, I just want to end with this. I've had an awful lot of fun doing these podcasts way more than I'd anticipated doing when we made a business decision that we were going to be, uh, offering these. It's been great to hear from people who listen to this every day. Uh, part of their commute that means a lot to me Uh, it it means a lot to all of us we got some pretty encouraging numbers in the past week as far as our listenership how much it's growing how much people stay through to the end of the show which you can actually track how long they listen to the show don't worry we're not spying on you here it's it's really general stuff but it's it's fun to hear it's very rewarding thank you so much let's do it again monday your front door